the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the inaugural Dan Proft Show of 2021. Thank you for joining us. I hope uh, everyone had a uh, lovely, joyous, restful holiday season to borrow from uh, Ambrose Spears in the Devil's Dictionary, the definition of a year, a period of 365 disappointments. So this is uh, day four of disappointments for 2021, day one of disappointments for the Dan Prof Show, but I'll do my best to minimize the damage of the disappointments. Uh, We begin on this installment, opening the year, sort of where we left last year, maybe even where we left uh, two years ago. We've got a Zelensky-style call involving President Trump. And calls for his impeachment, indictment, imprisonment uh, over the weekend, of course, from the usual suspects. This is uh, what it was tantamount to a settlement call between Trump and his election attorneys and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his attorneys over litigation that uh, the Trump campaign has filed in Georgia in this uh, rolling protestation of the administration of the election in Georgia, but also specific cohorts of ballots that were counted that the Trump campaign insists with some reason shouldn't have been counted. This hour-long call that, uh, of course, was dutifully turned around and released to the Washington Post includes, you know, Trump holding court, not letting his election attorneys, particularly Cleta Mitchell, who is par excellence when it comes to election law, and I know her well, and I know this area quite a bit, running as many campaigns as I have run, and administering a pack that I did and so forth. So I know a bit about uh, who is good and who is uh, less good. And Cleta Mitchell is very good. She was one of Trump's attorneys on the call. It would have been better if she spoke because she sort of got to the crux of it when she did, and I'll get there. But with respect to President Trump, it was very much like, uh, can you do me a favor in the Zelensky call that led to his impeachment a couple of years back, right? The way that Trump speaks. However, If you read the transcript or listen to the hour-long call, what becomes clear is that, not surprisingly, the characterization by the D.C. press corps and uh, Hill Dem Socialists is just completely absurd. He's soliciting Brad Raffensperger to commit uh, voter fraud, election fraud. He's uh, blackmailing him. He's threatening him. He's doing nothing of the sort. In fact, there's much specificity in Trump's rambling for much of the hour-long call. He goes through... You know, here's how many ballots that our experts have found and uh, our auditors have certified are legit that uh, people who voted uh, who were deceased. Secretary of State's office in Georgia says it's two. We say it's 5,000. Okay, there's a discrepancy. The number of people who voted out of state voted after having moved out of the state of Georgia illegitimately. The issues with absentee ballots, you know, the signature matches, the signatures at all being on the applications and so forth. He goes through chapter and verse. 
And so everybody focuses in, everybody who is uh, trying to undermine Trump and trying to misdirect people away from the underlying substance of the issue, which is the question of whether or not there were a, a number of ballots that were counted that shouldn't have been that rise to the level of changing the outcome in Georgia, which was, you know, 11,779. That's the margin. So he said, so when Trump says, as you're about to hear him say, I just need, you know, 11,780. I just need you to find 11,780 and it turns the thing over. So that, so just go do that. The impression you're left with, oh, he, that, that he has nothing and he's just saying, Raffensperger, go out indiscriminately and find these number of votes and then announce you flip the election and I won. It's ridiculous. He's got attorneys on the call. They're going through specific ballot cohorts. What you'll hear from Cleta Mitchell and another one of Trump's election attorneys provide some direction for the relief they're requesting, and it's reasonable. So here's what Trump said that has everybody predisposed to getting whipped into a lather, whipped into a lather. The people of Georgia are angry. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. But if you read or listen to the whole thing, Trump... uh, says repeatedly, look, I won the state by hundreds of thousands of votes. At one point he says, I think I won the state by half a million votes. So he's not saying go find something that doesn't exist. He's saying all you have to do is look at a fraction of what we're saying occurred, and there's more than enough votes to turn it. So you don't have to examine every batch of votes we say was illicit. You don't have to go through and do signature checks on on every absentee ballot vote in Fulton County. You just have to look at, as his attorney said, four categories and you come up with 24,000 hard ballots that should not have been counted that were that uh, at minimum put the outcome in doubt that's actually the context there which is you know important uh and uh uh trump says as you heard him say we'll have more tonight monday because of course, rallying for Purdue and Leffler in Georgia in advance of Tuesday's runoff election in Georgia. And and he said, you know, you should want to straighten this out for the purposes of your own credibility with uh, Georgians who are voting on Tuesday or who have voted in advance of the runoffs tomorrow. This should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up. And because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday. And admittedly, Trump did sort of what he did in the first debate with Biden. He wouldn't allow his opponent to respond and perhaps uh, serve Trump's interests in so doing. You know, allow your opponent to uh, implicate himself. Uh, at minimum, get more detail from Raffensberger and the attorneys present on the call representing the Georgia Secretary of State's office than you were otherwise getting by just continuing to you know, rattle uh, off statistics and ramble on about uh, what he should do and what the implications of of what he does or doesn't do could be and so on and so forth. You know, give the guy a chance to respond. We're trying to get answers to questions we don't have answers to. And Raffensperger has just taken the posture of your data is wrong, my data is right. What you're saying is untrue, what I'm saying is true, without uh, showing his work. And if it's 
yes, if it's so clear cut, then why wouldn't you want to show your work to the world and remove all doubt? And that's sort of where Cleta Mitchell and Kurt Hilbert go. These are two election attorneys for Trump on the call. And just reading for the tran- from the transcript, uh, an excerpt of what Cleta Mitchell said, I think explaining the crux of the matter. The, the general problem is this, quote, you have data and records that we don't have access to. And you keep telling us and making public statements that you investigated this and nothing to see here. But we don't know about that. All we know is what you tell us, unquote. The point is uh, to say what, what we're trying to do is match up what we contend is true with the data that you have that we don't have to get definitive answers to questions like, was it two people who were dead who voted or 5,000? Kurt Hilbert, uh, her colleague, one of Trump's other election attorneys, quoting him again from the call. Just four categories that have already been mentioned by the president that have actual that have actually hard numbers of 24,149 votes that were counted illegally. That in and of itself is sufficient to change the results or place the outcome in doubt. We would like to sit down with your office and we can do it through purposes of compromise and just like this phone call, just to deal with that limited category of votes. And if you're able to establish that our numbers are not accurate, then fine. How is that an unreasonable position? Uh, what Raffensberger has said, and his attorney said on that call, is, well, there's, there's information that we can't disclose under penalty of law. Well, th- there's got to be a, a, a way to address the you know, specific 24,149 votes, hard numbers, 24,149 that were counted legally. That's all they're saying. Bump those up against information that you have that we don't have, ideally with, in, in our view, so that we can, can agree that you know, one or the other of us is correct. Bump those up. Bump our data up against your data, and then we'll know the answer. And if it's uh, not 24,149, if it's less than 11,779, then okay, fine. Uh, easy peasy. And then you have us going out and saying they did this, and uh, here was the result, and that's legitimate. And wouldn't that be in everybody's best interest, uh, whether you have to require an NDA or, or some other uh, convention in order to get this done? But I, I just wanted to be clear because of so the, the misreporting on this. This is not asking anybody to invent anything out of whole cloth. This is saying these just the four, just four categories that were mentioned by Trump on that call – 24,149. Give us an answer on those 24,149, whether it's, you know, whatever the combination of dead voters, absentee ballot voters, out-of-state voters, and so on and so forth. Whatever that combination is, bump it up against your data. Give us a response to that that we can verify or we can have independent experts, auditors verify. And then let's be done with it. Questions asked, question answered. is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm moving from uh, the Georgia call to uh, what will transpire on Wednesday. 
with uh, objections to Biden's election. And we'll see how the Georgia election outcome perhaps uh, informs what happens on Wednesday. But I I wanted to present um, the uh, opposition to the Cruz and uh, Hawley objections to be lodged. And I wanted to do so. This hasn't gotten much publicity. It deserves a little bit more because it comes from somebody who's also a Trump supporter, not holier than thou, not dismissing claims of election fraud. That's Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who will not be part of the uh, Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson 11 in the Senate. You know, and then you have Josh Hawley sort of doing his own thing. Uh, We'll get to that. But uh, Tom Cotton said uh, he wrote in a statement. I share the concerns of many Arkansans and about irregularities in the presidential election, especially in states that rush through election law changes to relax standards for voting by mail, share their disappointment. I therefore support a commission to study the last election and propose reforms to protect the integrity of our elections. And after Republicans win in Georgia, the Senate should also hold more hearings on these matters. All Americans deserve to have confidence in the elections that undergird our free government. But he suggests that um, objecting uh, sets the wrong precedent. Uh, the founders uh, entrusted the elections to the states, not Congress. They entrusted the election of the president to the people acting through the Electoral College, not Congress. And so it would um, uh, establish unwise precedents for Congress to participate in potentially overturning the results of the Electoral College, as you'll hear Ted Cruz outline the, uh, the, the, the competing case in just a moment. Congress would take away the power to choose the president from the people, would essentially end presidential elections, place the power in hands of whichever party controls Congress is concern one of Cotton. Second, would imperil the Electoral College, which gives small states like Arkansas a voice in presidential elections. Third, take another big step towards federalizing election law, which is something Republicans have consistently opposed, consistent with the Constitution that makes elections largely state and local matters. Therefore, he's not going to oppose counting the certified electoral votes on January 6th. I'm not sure how much uh, anything that Republicans do or don't do sets a precedent for ends justify the means Democrats. So that isn't particularly persuasive to me, but it's worth considering what Cotton had said, given the perspective that he comes from. Now, Ted Cruz was on with Maria Bartiroma yesterday, and he had this to say in making his case, along with 10 of his colleagues, for uh, a objection Uh, for a call for a bipartisan election commission to be established to investigate legitimate claims of election fraud in the in the states in question that have not been uh, addressed satisfactorily. And they could do that within 10 days. So in no way jeopardize the constitutionally mandated January 20th inauguration day. Uh, Here's the cruise on the precedent for that. I think the strongest precedent is the presidential election of 1876. Uh, Hayes versus Tilden. In that election, there were serious allegations of fraud in three different states, in in Florida, in Louisiana, and in uh, South Carolina. And and what did Congress do in 1876? Now, now, they didn't throw up their hands and say, well, gosh, we've got allegations of fraud, but we can't do anything about it. We've just got to certify. No, nope, they didn't do that. Yeah. What they did instead is they appointed a commission. It was called an electoral commission, consisted of five House members, five senators, five Supreme Court justices. They considered evidence, they examined the ballots, and they made a determination based upon what the disputed ballots and what the outcome should be. What I'm arguing for is Congress ought to do the same thing. We ought to have a fair 
inquiry, a fair audit into these results. And, and, we, and we ought to resolve these claims, not just dismiss them out of hand. And uh, it's interesting because the response is, oh, the 1876, 1877 compromise and the 1876 election. Well, that was, you know, that uh, uh, ended Reconstruction and it, uh, it uh, you know, of course, relates to the treatment of uh, black Americans and so forth and suggests that oh, Tr- uh, Cruz is using some racist precedent to uh, base his objection, uh, which to base his objection. Well, in point of fact, these, of course, are the. Uh, historical know nothings, uh, 17, 16, uh, 19 project types, I suppose. Uh, 1876, the allegations were Democrats intimidating uh, and bribing black voters in three states that were controlled by Republicans in question Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, the only three states that were controlled by Republicans at that time in the South. It was Democrats engaged in you're trying to suppress the black vote. And the compromise was for Hayes, the Republican, to uh, be uh, installed as the president of the United States in uh, in, in, in the, the compromise with that Republicans would draw with would would withdraw federal troops from the south and and so forth. But I mean, just the idea that this was somehow Republicans trying to propagate racist institutions is exactly opposite of what the 1877 compromise was, just as a quick aside. Uh, okay, now back to this. So this, this is a Cruz's point. And then Maria Baroma asked the proper follow-up question. Well, okay, so this, let's say this commission were to be formed, which is highly unlikely given that it would require a majority of the support in the House too, controlled narrowly by Democrats. If you did find uh, definitive evidence of fraud, then what happens? Well, then the results have to be set aside. If there's evidence of fraud and it's substantial and significant enough to affect the results in a particular state, then then, then those election results would have to be set aside. And and, and the states would then have to determine, all right, we have a valid claim here. The evidence supports it. We need to conduct elections consistent with the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, Josh Howley from Missouri has a little bit different spin. Of course, he was the first senator to announce that he would be lodging an objection on Wednesday. He did this last week. Uh, he's He went it alone. He's not part of this group of 11 that uh, Cruz assembled, uh, including Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who probably has the most uh, politically to lose by participating in this. It's worth noting a lot of the other senators that are part of that group are from states that you know went convincingly for Trump. I think Ron Johnson perhaps may be the only Republican senator not from such a state. So he's a uh, uh, no, that's a political risk for him to do it, and that's worth noting. But uh, Josh Hawley has a bit of a different wrinkle uh, with respect to the basis for his objection, and it uh, folds in big tech. Well, first of all, I, I don't recall hearing the Democrats make any such outrageous claims when they were the ones who were objecting during the Electoral College certification in 2004 and 2016. Democrats have done this for years in order to raise concerns about election integrity. Now when Republicans, 74 million Americans have concerns about election integrity, we're supposed to just sit down and shut up? I mean, somebody has to stand up here. You've got 74 million Americans who feel disenfranchised, who feel like their vote doesn't matter, and this This is the one opportunity that I have as a United States senator. This process right here, my one opportunity to stand up and say something. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah. And uh, Holly is right to point out the uh, recent precedents the Democrats have set, uh, given their hand wringing and their overthrow of democracy, hyperbole and so on and so forth, that uh, there was no such consternation about the future of the Republican when Democrats protested 
the outcome in 2016 when they objected to the results in Ohio, uh, the outcome there giving George uh, W. Bush a second term in 2004. Um, so that's why I suggest perhaps the precedent-setting concern that Cotton has is not exactly well-founded if he's trying to uh, establish some restraint on Democrats by example of Republicans. I just don't think there is any such restraint to be had. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. So tomorrow is the all-important Georgia Senate runoff elections. Tonight, President Trump will be in Georgia rallying Trump supporters to uh, ensure that they vote tomorrow because it uh, looks to be a turnout game. I mean, I, the, the scuttlebutt has been that the RNC is very confident that David Perdue is going to win, and they easily was the uh, adverb that I heard. And that uh, Kelly uh, Leffler is also uh, up a bit on Warnock. That uh, doesn't really comport with the most recent Trafalgar polling I've seen, which has it statistically a dead heat. And I mean, you know, 50-49 type dead heat. So Trump will make it unequivocal, as he did a couple of weeks ago, that people need to get out and support Purdue and Leffler and put them over the top so that Republicans retain control of the Senate. But I wonder how the uh, coverage of the conversation between Trump and his legal team and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his legal team over the weekend will be received and and uh, how it will impact the election amid all the calls from, you know, political sophists like our own sack of Durbin, Durbin to suggest that uh, Trump's uh, admonishments of Raffensperger to uh, examine the areas where the Trump campaign has identified votes that shouldn't be counted, election irregularities, fraud, if you will, uh, that uh, it amounts to criminal activity, a criminal solicitation to commit election fraud is what, of course, the left is trying to spin from uh, this comment that Trump made in, during their uh, hour-long conversation. The people of Georgia are angry, and these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And uh, this is that is being interpreted, uh, of course, in the worst possible way, like the do me a favor line in the Zelensky call that led to the House Democrats impeaching Trump, being interpreted as, some again, solicitation, criminal activity, and uh, extra blackmail, and so on and so forth. When in um, point of fact, and by the way, this is included in Fox News reporting, which was a terrible report, 
I don't know who, which report. That, that's ridiculous. She misunderstands it, just as the Democrats are purposely misunderstanding it, that Trump is suggesting somehow, you know, we lost by 12,000 votes, so now we, you need to find 12,000 votes. That's not what he was saying. If you look at the transcript or listen to the entire conversation leaked to the Washington Post, you hear him going through, over the course of that hour, specific batches of votes that they believe should not were counted improperly, whether it is people who died and there's a dispute about how many people dead voted, whether it's people who moved out of state and there's a dispute about that, whether there's people who didn't properly sign the absentee ballot application and so on and so forth. He talked in, in that same hour long conversation, Trump said, I, basically, I, I think I won Georgia by half a million votes. So what he's saying is all I need is 12,000 uh, or I, uh, you know, from the hundreds of thousands, I actually won the state by. You don't need to do the whole thing. Just look at a, a few categories of what I'm saying, and you'll find what we found, what our election experts found, what our those who audited our findings found. And just to point this out from the attorneys, because this won't be covered anywhere else, maybe by some of our colleagues on Salem, but certainly not by the D.C. press corps. Cleta Mitchell, who, as I've said before and will say again, you've heard her on this show, is one of the preeminent election attorneys in D.C., quoting her to the Raffensperger and his team. You have data and records that we don't have access to. And you keep telling us and making public statements that you investigated this and nothing to see here. But we don't know about that. All we know is what you tell us. Then her colleague, also a Trump campaign attorney, Kurt Hilbert, goes on to say, look, quote, just four categories that have already been mentioned by the president that have actually hard numbers of 24,149 votes that were counted illegally. That in and of itself is sufficient to change the results or place the outcome in, d- in doubt. We would like to sit down with your office and we can go and, and we can do it through purpose, uh, purposes of compromise. And just like this phone call, just to deal with that limited category of votes. And if you're able to establish that our numbers are not accurate, then fine. So all of this bluster surrounding this conversation because of the way Trump talks, and if you actually drill down to what his legal representatives are saying, that, that's what you get from Cleta Mitchell and Kurt Hilbert. But how will this play, uh, the, all of this play, and what can we expect tomorrow with so much hanging in the balance? And um, it, really, it, it really is basically that. When we come back, we'll be joined by a former state deputy director of the Georgia Republican Party, Janelle King. Dan Prof Show, and for a uh, preview and perhaps some predictions as to Tuesday's Georgia Senate runoff elections, we're pleased to be joined by Janelle King. She's the co-founder of Speak Georgia, and she's also the former deputy state director for the Georgia Republican Party. Janelle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. How are Georgia Republicans receiving this latest contretemps over uh, the Trump uh, Raffensperger call? <laughs> What's so funny is that I don't think I've talked to one Republican about it because we're all numb to the Democrat hit pieces. You know, I think at this point um, they have taken the entire four years that the president was in office and made it 
about him, you know, doing things that we know he wasn't doing and just kind of highlighting information and highlighting stuff to create distractions. And so we're pretty much numb to it. Um, you know, with this call here, I'm, I'm not surprised that the Democrats are taking it and trying to spin it in, in a way that makes it look like the president is doing something criminal, when in fact, everything he said in that call is something that he tweeted out at least once before. So um, there was nothing there, and uh, we're not even talking about it or addressing it. Right now, we're focused on this Senate race, and the Senate race is the only thing we're focused on, um, because what we know is that our country is at stake. And if we do not make a decision and make the right decision to support Senator Leffler and Senator David Perdue tomorrow, then we are handing this country over to the Democratic Party. What 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 is the state of, of affairs though with the local Republican Party? Because that matters, and 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 you know, I just uh, Trump uh, referring to himself in that same call as a schmuck for supporting Brian Kemp. Obviously, we know what his opinion of Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is, and the job that uh, both of the them have done. Uh, I mean, I'm not uh, nearly as hard on Kemp as the president is want to be, but but does does that have a, a depressive effect at all? Do you think, in terms of turnout, uh, the uh, the the squabbling going on between uh, Trump and particularly Kemp? I hope not. You know, what I'm thinking though is that you know there are a lot of Republicans who feel um, a certain type of way, whether they support the president or Governor Kemp, or like myself, support both of our leaders. Um, however. I, I do know that one thing we all believe and we all understand is that this race is important. And so I, I truly believe that people are going to turn out the vote and they're going to show up on Election Day and we're going to bring this home. However, um, I do know that, you know, like all families, families fight sometimes, you know, and there's disagreement. And one thing this shows is that when the Democratic Party tries to paint a picture that we are all walking in lockstep with the president or lockstep with whoever our leaders are, no, we are independent thinkers and we're, we have these discussions. That's where disagreement comes from. But at the end of the day, we all can share. We, we all want election integrity and, and we want to feel like our vote is, is free and, and that it's taken and done fairly. And so that's something that's universal. And uh, so how we get there may differ. But we, we definitely have the same end goal, and I believe that's going to be reflected tomorrow. What is happening in Georgia then? Is it just the nature of uh, all of this uh, change in election protocols and uh, the drop boxes and so forth? Because it, it is remarkable. It's it's one thing for you know Georgia to be close. It's another thing for uh, Warnock and Ossoff, who are so far left in, ad- in in addition to all of their infirmities, Warnock has personality and Ossoff his uh, Chinese ties, Chinese communist ties. Remarkable that they could be in statistical dead heats with the two incumbents, isn't it? It is. And, and the thing is, though, people are, the, the Democrats who are voting in this race and voting for those candidates are not necessarily voting for Ossoff and Warnock. They're voting for Stacey Abrams and they're voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and everyone else who has been able to propagandize them into thinking that this is what's best for them. It's not a situation where we have um, two candidates on the left that are strong candidates. And we knew that from the very beginning. And I believe that that's going to be their downfall. Um, The Democratic Party has, in my opinion, hasn't done a good job of picking good candidates in a very long time. So, you know, but, but what they did do was create this referendum against the president. And then they created this notion and, and this perception and narrative that, all Republicans are racist and that all Republicans simply want to, you know, destroy your life when in fact that is their strategy and their narrative that, they're, uh, that they have. And so 
I, more than anything else, what I'm seeing is, like I said, the referendum on the president and the referendum on the Republican Party as a whole. And then they are getting more and more people out to vote that doesn't typically vote um, at, due, due to their increased efforts. And when you can raise $100 million in three months, um, and there's a lot that you can do as far as spreading messaging, whether it be true or false. And, and so and so – well, so, so, so what happens tomorrow? Because the early voting I saw, the early voting numbers I saw last week suggest that the, uh, the turnout was better for Democrats than it was in advance of the November 3rd election. Now, again, you can only read so much into early voting numbers, but, but it does suggest mm-hmm. that a big Election Day turnout is necessary for Purdue and Leffler. You know, that is actually the position that we're used to being in. Um, you know, going back, it's other races. We are um, we typically show up on Election Day. And so I, I would rather be in this position where I see that, in my opinion, I think around 80 percent of Democrats have already you know, cast their vote. So we kind of know where they stand. So this now leaves the ball in our court. And it's really up to Republicans to get out the vote. And that's it. There's no other way that we can lose this other than not showing up. And so um, and that, I think that's a good position to be in. It's, it's tricky and it's risky, of course, um, but it's definitely the best position to be in at this time. What is new for tomorrow that wasn't in place for November 3rd? Well, I know there was a lot of talk about um, um, poll workers, and we personally have 8,000 poll watchers um, that are already being deployed to go out and, and, and watch these days, which is more than what we had in November. Um, so we definitely increased that. Our poll watchers are now on high alert. Um, because of everything that's happened, I think that this that also created an education towards our poll watchers and our attorneys to be able to look for smaller things that they may not have noticed in the first go round. So um, I, I do feel hopeful about that. And but most importantly, there is no argument if we don't show up. So um, so so not voting is not an option. And and I believe that as long as we show up and we we go ahead and we press those numbers, I I think we'll be fine. One of the things I looked at is I know we are down by. Um, I think we're down by about 20, a little over 20 percent in turnout overall than in November. And then the, the mail-in ballots, which is where we saw most of the fraud, is also down about 20 percent. So if we look at it from that perspective, if they did cheat in the same way that we believe they did beforehand, it would take uh, almost twice the effort to do so. And I'm pretty sure that we're, we're in place to be able to catch that. Uh, Janelle King, co-founder of Speak Georgia, former deputy state director for the Georgia Republican Party. Janelle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Emmanuel Cleaver, he's a Democrat from Missouri, opened uh, up the 117th Congress with prayer. And this is what uh, the good representative had to say. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths, a man and a woman. A Republican congressman pointed out that uh, amen is Latin for so be it. It is not uh, gendered. But, um, of course, that is of little consequence in the era of identitarian idiocy. Uh, I guess a woman or a women would mean so be it unless I change my mind. 
And it's comments like that why Dan Proft is single. But I digress. Uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, you may remember him from such classics as, uh, gosh, just uh, nine years ago. Remember this? This is uh, the same Emmanuel Cleaver who had uh, this interesting, colorful description of the Obama Senate Republican debt deal, raised the debt ceiling in addition uh, in exchange for some deficit reduction. Of course, he wanted the debt ceiling raised. He doesn't want a debt ceiling at all, does Cleaver. Uh, and he didn't want any of the spending cuts. I'm concerned about this because we don't know the details. And, and until we see the details, uh, we're going to be extremely non-committed. But on the surface, it looks like a Satan sandwich. A Satan sandwich. A Satan sandwich. Uh, yeah, uh, he's the Satan sandwich guy, in case you forgot. Now he's a full identitarian, of course. You go with this zeitgeist. Um, by the way, all the, the invocation politicians of, of the uh, corporal and spiritual works of mercy and so forth, uh, you'll have to point me to the passage where it says the government shall. You shall take from your neighbor in order to. Where does it say that? It says you shall. You shall take. It doesn't say you shall take from your neighbor in order to do it. But I digress. Uh, it is consistent, though, amen and a woman with Nancy Pelosi's announcement last week that um, – House rules will erase gender terms such as father, mother, son, and daughter. Changes to pronouns and familial relationship in the House rules to be gender neutral or removes reference to gender as appropriate to ensure we are inclusive of all members, delegates, resident commissioners, and their families, including those who are non-binary. Starting with uh, Nancy Pelosi's Twitter page, which she refers in her bio sentence as being a mother and a father. Uh, you wouldn't want to offend any of your members, delegates, resident commissioners, or their families who are non-binary, would you? Madam? Do I, can I say that, Speaker? Here's where we're at, just on this whole A-women and the removal of mom and daughter and father and son from the House rules. We're exactly where Ralph Waldo Emerson said we would be in his uh, treatise on language in nature uh, back uh, almost uh, 175 years ago, so... He uh, wrote to uh, Emerson, and I'm no transcendentalist, I'm no Emersonian transcendentalist here, but he had a point about language. Uh, he wrote, the corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language. When simplicity of character and the sovereignty of ideas is broken up by the prevalence of secondary desires, the desire of riches, of pleasure, of power, and of praise, and duplicity and falsehood take the place of simplicity and truth, that is where we're at. Duplicity and falsehood taking the place of simplicity and truth. Emerson correct about words being properly used to convey natural facts and being corrupted when used otherwise. And here we are in the corruption phase. This is Dan Prost. This is the Dan Prost Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parlor. A lot of unanswered questions from 2020, and some that um, at least the D.C. press corps stopped asking that you think would be material to our response to COVID-19, our understanding of what happened so that uh, we can make better decisions prospectively, perhaps. Also, to hold people accountable who were bad actors, like, for example, I don't know, the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party. Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger telling uh, Paul's from around the world 
That intelligence points to the likelihood of the virus leaking from China's biggest lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's a growing body of evidence that the lab is likely the most credible source of the virus, he said. Even establishment figures in Beijing have openly dismissed the wet market story, he added. But when Trump suggested that uh, it and, and this was, I thought, generous, that it was an accident. We don't know exactly if it if it number one, we don't know if this is the source. But why are not we not asking questions? Why are we not investigating? You don't want to know the or the origination of this virus that has shut down the world. This is lunacy. Why? Because to ask questions of Chinese communists is what uh, is racist, is uh, uh, runs afoul of NBA protocols. I mean, what, what, what is it exactly? LeBron James doesn't want to know. So we don't want to know. I, I don't get it. So it's important that the deputy national security advisor is briefing politicians from around the world on the topic and that maybe we're zeroing in on this. And golly, I mean, it certainly was a would have been a would be, since it's still pending, uh, a wild coincidence that a level four virology lab in Wuhan hap- is also the site of or you know the proximity uh, to the site where the virus first was recognized and and ultimately spread. So uh, important information, I, I would think. It, shouldn't it inform our relationship with China? Shouldn't it inform our relationship with international quasi-governmental agencies like the World Health Organization that uh, are predisposed to be beholden to China? For more on this and uh, other such matters, please be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be with you. Hey, I just want to say people should remember the name Matt Pottinger. Matt uh, was in the administration from the beginning. He's led on many of the Asia issues. He's probably the most effective, brilliant young leader the conservative movement has on foreign affairs in general, but on Asia in particular. And, you know, I think, and if there had been a second Trump term, he might well he probably would have been the next national security advisor. So people should remember that name. That's a name to listen to and, and a voice to, yeah, to, but, but, to, to be respectful of. But here's the, here's the problem, uh, Jim. I think his career is going to be cut short because if what he's saying is true, that runs afoul of Richard Ingalls reporting. And that is a crime that you cannot recover from. Well, look, I, here's the, the, the important thing, which is, we know that we cannot trust the Chinese Communist Party. There is already an overwhelming abundance of evidence to suggest that. So this is already a fact pre-established that the Chinese Communist Party has only one interest, and that is the, the promotion and the sustainment and the expansion of their power and influence. We knew that before COVID. Um, it's been demonstrated many, many times since. So the notion that the Chinese lied to us and that, and that the Chinese Communist Party is just out for themselves, uh, that shouldn't come as news to anybody. But, but this gets to the larger point of where do we go from here? Because there are no do-overs in foreign policy and national security. And the reality is, is if you have an incoming Biden administration, if their notion is we have to figure out a way to accommodate and deal with the Chinese, the message to the Chinese Communist Party is the Americans aren't going to stand up to us. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. The reality is, is we were we are heading in the right direction 
and changing course now is, again, like I said, we're just sending all the wrong signals to the Chinese. There is not a different way to deal with this country other than pushing back and defending our interests and our equities. But here's the thing. Here's why. I mean, one of the reasons I would suggest why this story is so important. There are many. While the D.C. press corps is still trying to figure out who in the administration called COVID-19 the Kung flu, because that's the real issue. uh, Now we have a situation where if if it is ultimately uh, proven or conceded that there was an outbreak or perhaps even worse, maybe it was purposeful. I mean, I'm not putting anything past Chinese communists who put uh, Muslim minorities in concentration camps. Okay, that's me. Uh, but if if that is established, then it boxes the Biden administration in because the outrage over the lying one would think in the Western world will be such that any weakness in the direction of China will be perceived as you know walking away from the, uh, the 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 calamity they visited upon the world. Yeah, I would like that to believe that that's true, but I don't think it is. But people have found lots of ways to excuse Chinese behavior. And, and what we have seen is leaders have to stand up for nations to stand up. And what Trump was doing was pushing back. And a lot of the reason why a lot of world leaders didn't like Trump was because he was making them face hard truths, that they really just wanted to look the other way and not face. I mean, this was particularly true in Europe. And so the reality is, is unless leaders lead, people will find ways to cave to the Chinese. Look, this isn't new. I mean, you know, do people forget Munich? I mean, European leaders were scurrying around, figuring out ways to just accommodate Hitler, and maybe things were different. Not that I'm equating the Chinese and and, and the Nazis, but the dynamics are the same. These are regimes that are just out for themselves. And if you accommodate them, what do you think they're going to do? And they want to create situations where they give you every reason to find an excuse not to do something. This is the Chinese way. This goes back to their ancient, ancient... strategic philosophy of winning without fighting, which is you don't want to have a war with somebody. You want to convince them to just let you win. And this is the Chinese way. And if leaders don't lead, people will fall for it. Oh, of course, that's true. But 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 I mean, that is not to say that uh, identifying the origination of the virus is without uh, import. No, I think it is important. You know, for, for no other respect, that it is a novel coronavirus. So how it evolved, regardless of the complicity of the Chinese or whatever, understanding how that virus evolved is important just from an epidemiological standpoint in terms of dealing with future outbreaks. So all that information is critical and vital. And so essentially what you have today is, you know, a year, well over a year after the outbreak, the Chinese are contributing to perpetuating a global health crisis. Right. Speaking of of the the topic and sort of the the, the sort of the statement of principle you were making about leadership, you know, this is – I know that that health policy is not your area of expertise, but this has implications beyond that. Uh, This Christmas Eve interview that uh, Tony Fauci gave to the New York Times in which he uh, suggested that the estimate that he offered on herd immunity, the threshold for herd immunity, was, quote, partly based on new science and partly on his gut feeling that the country is finally ready to hear what he really thinks. He told the New York Times reporter, I'm quoting him, continuing to quote him, when Paul said only about half of all Americans would take a vaccine, I was saying herd immunity would take 70 to 75 percent. Then when newer surveys said 60 percent or more would take it, I thought I can nudge this up a bit. So I went to 80 to 85 percent. Do you think that is 
appropriate uh, to be tolerated by our elected officials from a public health official? Do you think that is the way that the leadership in a free society should communicate with its constituents? Do you think this enhances our domestic uh, response to COVID-19 and thus our uh, robustness uh, across any measure, including our security the world over? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I have a long background in homeland security and 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 these dealing with these large disasters and everything else. And the rule is always, the the, the best rule is always the same: is you, you tell people what you know when you know it, right? So truth is is really the the best way to deal with that, and that's what people want. They want information that is credible. They want information that's actionable, and they want information that's understandable. And and that should always be your criteria, whether it's a public health crisis or a hurricane or a natural disaster or a terrorist attack. So you know, the American people are grown-ups. I think you look at masks, you know, where we had this kind of Manichaean thing where I, I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm going to wear a mask to bed, right? And the reality is, is this, that's not what the science says. And rather than just kind of tell people what the science says and let people make decisions, you know, we, 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 we go into these Manichaean positions of, I need a mask, I don't need a mask. So I, I always think the best thing to do is just tell people what the science actually says. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thank you so much. And I thank you guys. You know, you guys have the best show. I, I, you always get to the facts and the real issue. So yeah, thanks for doing that. I want to make sure there's three <laughs> people listening. Thanks, guys. <laughs> exactly. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, renewing our commitment in 21 that we uh, made in 2020 is to try to get people on the show who don't come from the same philosophical base to have uh, conversations about public policy that hopefully elucidate something important or at least provide fodder for thinking differently, even if it's in disagreement with me, much as much to my chagrin. Our first example in the new year is Jeet Heer, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Pretty an interesting piece about uh, Mitch McConnell uh, vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Uh, again, not coming from the same place, but um, the perspective that's worth hearing regardless. Uh, Jeet, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, good to be here. Um, so one of the, the, the things as I was reading your piece uh, in The Nation um, about uh, McConnell and then seeing what's played out in the last couple of days, both with Pelosi's reelection as speaker, as well as the uh, gang of 12 or 11 plus one, as it were, in the Senate that will object to Biden's election on Wednesday, plus 100 Republican members in the House, including the minority leader. So that's a little bit different. Is I wonder mm-hmm. in uh, post-Trump if uh, leadership in the House and Senate in both parties will not have the same command control over their caucuses that they used to, that the, the energy is coming from somewhere other than leadership and thus, you know, they're on defense a little bit more than perhaps they've been previously. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good comment. And I think it's true that I think both parties have uh, fracturing a little bit and have like, you know, real internal debates. Uh, and it's something that's much broader than Trump. Uh, and it's good in some ways that, you know, Trump is going to be out of the way. And so we can kind of see it more clearly. 
which is that, you know, in both parties, you have a kind of uh, energetic, generally younger generation um, uh, that is uh, caring through politics, and you have an older generation that's in power, but which is kind of sclerotic. And in some ways, the Democrats um, have the worst of this, because they, uh, they actually have, like, a, a very old leadership class. Uh, um, Pelosi is, I believe, 80 or 81, um, and uh, Hoyer is also in that uh, age range. Uh, so, um, I mean, we used to joke in the 19... I mean, I'm, uh, I know how old you are, but uh, I'm old enough to remember the 1980s, and uh, back yes. then there was a big joke about, like, the Soviet Union. You know, you had uh, these the ancient codgers like Brezhnev um, and Andropov uh, before Gorbachev came along uh, who were ruling it. But uh, the actual political class in Washington, D.C., for, for both parties, but particularly the Democrats, is like about 10 years older than the Politburo was in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an interesting comparison on multiple levels. But uh, with respect to uh, the, the, that leadership, too, that energy, the piece that you wrote about talking about uh, the stimulus and Trump's push for $2,000 checks that was joined by Democrats, uh, even Democrat socialists like Bernie Sanders uh, formally, um, you know, it required uh, McConnell to, you know, be the mechanic that he is to try to uh, forestall mm-hmm. that, which he's done. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wonder if um, uh, the the sort of the populist nature of the animating elements in both parties is going to move towards more sort of consensus uh, on both fiscal policy as well as perhaps regulatory policy. And so I think on the stimulus on the one hand, for example, mm-hmm. coming out of COVID, and I think of maybe some of what Josh Howley is saying about uh, big tech companies combined with what uh, other elements on the left, including Elizabeth Warren, have said about big, te- big tech companies may actually result in some action in a Biden administration. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really interesting because I, I do think that there, there um, are real possibilities for sort of a cross-pollination and, uh, you know, uh, cross-party alliances on these issues. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think that sort of... Uh, as, but I also think that there's a, uh, the bottleneck is that sort of older elite leadership, which is really, you know, um, perhaps uh, committed to gridlock. is kind of committed to, like, doing nothing, right? Like, I think... So, so for example, like Mitch McConnell... Like governing is basically getting judges in, and you know maybe tax cuts when you have a Republican president, um, uh, but otherwise uh, not. Uh, and I think on the Democratic side as well. Like I'm not sure that um, um, the uh, governing cost of the Democratic Party is, uh, is is as open to like breaking up big tech as some of the younger populists are. So um, so again, I like it's a, there's a real kind of you know. Is a combination of ideology and gener- um, generational differences, uh, but um, but I, I do see that I, I I think that's the bottleneck, and I, at the end to be like you know try to, try to be fair, like I think it's in both parties. So it's interesting you you bring up gridlock because I, I know I've seen some of your comments on on this, and it's um, uh, I want you to expound upon it because you you suggest that you know gridlock is actually more of a threat to the republic than those individuals calling for civil war. Um, you know, there, there's enough sort of push to tamp down people calling for civil war, people suggesting there's going to be blood in the streets. But you su- suggest that's less of an actual eventuality and, and really less of a threat than than is uh, a gridlocked Congress expound. 
Yeah, 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 no. I know. I mean, like, to me, like, exactly. I mean, like, I'm not, you know, like, the people, you know, uh, who are inciting violence, like, that is a real problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, I mean, there's, there's, like, very few of them, um, and there's this kind of, like, ambiguously related to, like, you know, the national security state. Like, you know, like, uh, oftentimes it turns out that these are people who are, like, you know, provoked by the, uh, you know, FBI agent provocateurs or whatever, right? Uh, but, uh, uh, but beyond that, I mean, like, I just think that there's this... Um, we we're not going to see a, a classical 19th century civil war uh, just because the, the population isn't sorted that way. Like, it's just, um, uh, you know, you don't have that. Uh, in, in even the British states, uh, uh, like Texas or Mississippi, you have, like, a lot of Democrats. And even in the bluest place, I mean, Trump got more votes in California than he got anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, what you might get is, like, a sort of, you know, a more distressing kind of... Um, uh, situation of like Europe in the 1970s with a lot of terrorism, uh, but um, but I mean leave, leaving that aside. I mean like the the question is like where does political um, real power is always like in Congress and in the United States. I mean like if you look back at the last 30 years, you've often had a case. Um, you've only had very rare instances where like you have the the um, the president. Um, having um, both the House and the Senate. Uh, Trump had it for two years. Obama had it for two years. Bush had it for, like, a little bit longer, but not that much longer. Uh, and so I really feel like it's... Um, uh, it, it really prevents um, uh, a lot of action being taken. And I think that this is... In some ways, the American system has been designed for this. It's been designed right. for checks and balances. Uh, but usually you have had in the past um, enough sort of uh, people working across party lines to get stuff done. And what's happened now is that you, the parties are becoming much more polarized, uh, where you get a real situation where it's like, like kind of, you know, if you work with someone from the other party, you're seen as a traitor. Uh, and, like, within the American system, that, that, that like, uh, leads to a situation where nothing can get done. He is Jeet here. He is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Oh, no, great to be here. It's it's a very productive conversation. Thank you. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Over the uh, holidays, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine uh, is continuing to uh, delve into the field of politics and advance the sort of woke perspective, published an advocacy article, not a medical paper, that suggested that um, sex designations on birth certificates should uh, be removed, that they serve uh, only uh, sociological, not uh, scientific ends. Stating medical facts doesn't serve scientific ends, apparently. Failed assignments rethinking sex designations on birth certificates was the piece over the holidays. And this is consistent with the manipulation of data in addition to the redefinition of the language. The New England Journal of Medicine, one of the, you know, the great respected journals 
in the West, along with the Lancet, both of which have, I think, lost a lot of their credibility, at least among those paying attention over the last eight months, just as so many in the public health and medical field have lost their credibility for similar reasons, that they're well outside of their kin engaged in cheap politics and transparently so. So the New England Journal of Medicine also suggested that with respect to the COVID death stats, that the number of deaths of individuals under the age of 40 was grossly underestimated. And our next guest wrote about uh, the manipulation at play there with that information. And I I say this just uh, against the backdrop of sort of what we know to be true. And this is government data, too. I wonder how long it'll be before they just start making up statistics altogether. In the city of Chicago, where I live, from March to the end of the year, there were 226 individuals under the age of 20 who died in Chicago. 109 died by homicide you know, because Chicago is one of these lawless shooting galleries turned over to the mob, as you probably have heard. Five individuals under the age of 20 died from COVID, and all five had underlying comorbidities. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Philip Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, AEIR.org, has been a must-reading during COVID. A lot of great contributions from Phil Magnus, from Jeffrey Tucker, from so many. Phil, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, that New England Journal of Medicine study that uh, we're uh, undercounting the deaths of individuals under the age of 40 as a result of COVID, they died of COVID, uh, you uh, dug into that and found that um, that top line sort of belied the actual evidentiary support. So there was a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times that announced that people under the age of 40 were at high risk from COVID. And the claim was that if you look at excess death data, and this is the uh, the CDC's metric of total deaths in society, there was a, a clear spike in young people that had gone up uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And they inferred from that that uh, these excess deaths uh, must have been COVID fatalities that just simply were not recorded in the uh, official accounting of statistics. So it was a big headline-grabbing claim promoted by the media all over the place. But if you dig into the statistics, and in particular a CDC report that came out right around the same time of this article, it turns out there's an alternative explanation. And that alternative is that opioid and substance abuse deaths shot way up after the outset of the lockdowns uh, at basically unprecedented levels. And you find that among young people, people under the age of uh, of 40 that are in this demographic group, opioid deaths are are one of the leading killers. And 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 this is uh, among a group that uh, what, what, what it's uh, they they represent about half of all confirmed cases and yet only two percent of the total deaths. Exactly. So we know that COVID has clear age gradients in the uh, uh, in its fatality rates uh, for older people, people with comorbidities. Uh, it is a serious and significant disease. But for young people that are healthy and basically just living their lives, it's a, it's an extremely low fatality rate, uh, probably even lower than the flu. And yet, uh, even though the cases have concentrated among the young, fatalities have been uh, relatively rare. Uh, compared to what we've seen in the outbreak. And, and I mean, what, the New England Journal of Medicine, what, is they're trying to uh, explain away or misdirect away from, uh, from opioid deaths or overdose deaths, one might think, but they sort of disclosed that in their paper. So I guess I'm left to wonder, I, I mean, what is your point exactly? The final sentence of the paper made this uh, fascinating kind of concession. They said, you know, we've inferred that these excess deaths among the young are COVID deaths, but it's also possible that they could be substance abuse, opioid deaths. Uh, And yet the journal 
and its editors and the authors of the piece did not investigate this any further. They basically just kind of let that hang out there as a uh, an alternative explanation, and it turns out the alternative is more likely to be true. Right, and so they, they, they cover themselves by saying, well, look, right there, we made that qualifying statement arguing in the alternative, but they know that uh, the, the, the press corps is going to run with their, you know, it's just as deadly under 40 as over 40, which is essentially what they've been trying to, to push from the beginning while downplaying uh, any sort of lives versus lives comparison between the virus and lockdown policies. That line did not get quoted in the New York Times or any of these other uh, national news outlets that trumpeted the headline that COVID is uh, is seriously deadly to uh, to young people. When we come back with uh, Phil Magnus, uh, being a lockdowner means never having to say you're sorry. We'll uh, have more. Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. More Phil Magnus right after the day. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with uh, Phil Magnus. He is the senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. And uh, Phil, you wrote a piece uh, recently for AIER. It's AIER.org documenting a dozen times that uh, proponents of lockdowns have been wrong on the merits. Um, I suppose this was probably just volume one of uh, this sort of category of uh, content that you could provide. But it is interesting to note, uh, even those who have been benighted by the the D.C. press corps like Tony Fauci, how often they've been wrong and um, how how infrequently there's been any apology or explanation uh, other than, frankly, politics for why they were wrong. Yeah, the uh, fascinating thing about being a lockdowner is just as you said, it means you uh, never have to admit that you were in error. And basically what I did in the piece is is track down a dozen or so of the worst instances over the last year in which lockdowners had made either a claim or a prediction that just turned out to be grossly in error. And this starts all the way back in January when Anthony Fauci was asked uh, in a, a CNN interview about uh, whether the Wuhan-style lockdowns would ever come to the United States. And he announces uh, straight out, and I quote him, he says, that's something I don't think we could possibly do in the United States. I can't imagine ever shutting down New York or Los Angeles. So (laughs) right there off the bat. (laughs) And two months later, he's an advocate of shutting down New York and Los Angeles and the rest of the country. Yeah, he, he vastly underestimated apparently what politicians are willing to do and what uh, populations, at least in certain places, are willing to tolerate, didn't he? Exactly, exactly. I, I mean, it's – and yeah, and, and with respect to Fauci, too, you know, it's not like he just burst onto the scene, right? So he's been at uh, CDC and NIH for the better part of uh, four decades. And, I, I mean, one of the features of the press corps, of course, is no institutional memory, at least when it comes to their sacred cows. I mean, this is the same Tony Fauci who, at the uh, advent of the HIV crisis, suggested that uh, it's very possible that HIV could spread casually, um, creating this hysteria that anybody can get HIV because you didn't want to be seen as discriminating against uh, intravenous drug users or gay people. So you have to create this illusion that uh, everybody is equally susceptible. And he seems to be in the have continued to be in the illusion uh, creation business for uh, 40 years going forward. 
That's exactly the case. And, and Fauci's a fascinating figure. If you read his statements closely, you notice that he, he's often very uh, dodgy in the language he uses. He says, well, uh, this might be a pandemic, or this might turn into uh, to nothing, or this might be a disease that transmits by uh, uh, just basic contact. Uh, but it, it, he's always leaving himself an out to kind of fudge the language around. And I think what we saw very recently is he admitted he does this on purpose. Uh, it was just a just before Christmas. He gave an interview where he announced that uh, the new threshold for vaccination that he's targeting for is 90 percent, whereas the previous month he was saying 70 percent. And someone asked him about this in the interview, and he says, "Oh yeah, I was basically lying because I was trying to uh, nudge the public in my direction. And now, uh, now that they've moved in my direction, uh, I can tell them the truth." Right. Uh, it, it's just sort of incredible. He's 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 not just saying, you know, which would be uh, appreciated. Hey, look. This is what we know, and this is what we don't know. He's basically saying, this is what I believe to be true, but I'm going to parcel it out based on what I think the American public is ready to consume, based on what I think I can do in terms of manipulating people to make the policy decisions or follow the advice and counsel that I'm providing. That's exactly the case. And we've seen him do this again. So one of the other instances I pointed out was uh, Fauci's statement back in March. He went on 60 Minutes very famously, and he's, he told everyone, you don't need to wear a mask. Masks are only needed in hospitals. Uh, they don't do you any good for uh, for stopping COVID. Uh, now we know exactly how that played out over the summer. He did a complete 180 uh, and reversed his position, as did the remainder of uh, basically the entire epidemiology profession. Uh, but it, it's, it's statements like this that are always made with a um, an air of expertise or certainty when they're projected to the media. And yet uh, the person making them goes around and does a, an about face, uh, completely changes their position a few months later, and acts as if it's no big deal. This is going to undermine public trust in uh, the healthcare officials that are, are supposedly guiding the, uh, the top levels of our pandemic policy. In addition to, to what else uh, he's been wrong about and, and others of his ilk, you know, that anybody that doesn't follow their advice, doesn't hew to the, the orthodoxy, uh, is cause of great concern. He disagrees. You know, there was open hostility towards Sweden maintaining a light touch for as long as it did. There was open hostility towards uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, to Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, for a lighter touch than many other states. Meanwhile, he lauds the state uh, that had the worst outbreak, the most lethal outbreak, the, the highest body count, as the model for COVID mitigation, New York. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you read some of the data here. I mean, New York, uh, the deaths per capita outrank every other country in the world. And I think they're second among states uh, next to neighboring New Jersey, which similarly botched its pandemic response in the spring. And yet Fauci's sitting here saying that New York is the model on how to control this thing. And not only did he, uh, he do this uh, recently, in December he announced that New York is how, what we should follow. He's been saying this since the summer. And yet if you look at New York's second wave, what happened in the fall, it's as bad, if not worse, than most of the other most populous states. Uh, so New York is doing Doing worse than Florida right now, even though they have roughly the same population, and Florida is completely open, but New York is locked down again. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know, basically, that uh, so much of the evidence suggests that lockdowns don't work. Um, so maybe, sort of, uh, with respect to masks, his initial pronouncement on masks, uh, he was in, he was initially correct, even though it was for the wrong reasons. He was trying to manipulate on the front end. He's trying to manipulate on the back end. But in point of fact, he was telling the truth about masks 
inadvertently in the beginning, and he was telling the truth about lockdowns in the beginning. Right. That's the thing. You can never tell with these uh, these public health experts and officials exactly what they're saying for political reasons versus what they're saying for scientific reasons. The same patterns played out not with Tony Fauci. We also know Neil Ferguson over in the UK, uh, or the famous Professor Lockdown, who uh, convinced both the British and American governments to shut down and then violated his quarantine to go uh, hang out with his mistress when he had COVID. But (laughs) it's like a recurring pattern of public statements and private behavior that uh, neither of which is trustworthy, and they're often in contradiction with each other. He should have just said he was winterizing his Delaware home like Dr. Burks. Maybe he could have got away with it then. Uh, (laughs) Philip Magnus... He should have been uh, decked out in BLM garb. Then he would have been insulated. (laughs) Uh, Philip Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back. Following on our conversation with Phil Magnus about uh, lockdowners, uh, we need a ditty, an anthem, perhaps, in response, something catchy. Well, enter Eric Clapton and Van Morrison. Yes, two rock and roll legends, both 75 years old. Van Morrison has written a new song, Stand and Deliver, performed by Eric Clapton. And uh, it is quite uh, the soulful blues Offering, take a listen. Stand and deliver. You let them put the fear on you. Stand and deliver. But not a word you heard is true. And if there's nothing you can say, there may be nothing you can do. Do you want to be a free man, or do you want to be a slave? Do you want to be a free man, or do you want to be a slave? Do you want to wear these chains, until you're lying in the grave? I don't want to be a pauper. And I don't want to be a prince I don't want to be a pauper And I don't want to be a prince I just want to do my job Playing the blues for my friends Magna Carta, Bill of Rights The Constitution, what's it worth? You know they're gonna grind us down uh, Until it really hurts Is this a sovereign nation Or just a police state You better look out people Before it gets too late 
How about it? Did you ever think you'd hear an Eric Clapton ditty with uh, Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, the Constitution? Not me. It's good stuff. Um, you know, right up there with pretending. Uh, tears from Heaven, maybe. Uh, it, it, the uh, track also concludes with the line, Dick Turpin wore a mask now. Dick Turpin wore a mask now. Turpin was an 18th century British criminal known for highway robbery. <laughs> I think I said at the outset of all this, I, I prefer my politicians in masks. That's sort of their natural state. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show the world is a complicated place you need someone to expose the political fakers fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all that person is dan proft and this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show, including Parlor. We find ourselves on Jan 4 in much the same position we were before the holidays, with the exception of some avenues of dispute resolution being foreclosed to the Trump campaign. But January 6th, uh, a vote counting exercise by Congress is not going to be without uh, some drama thanks to the announcement that uh, some 12 U.S. senators and more than 100 Republican members of the House are going to lodge objections to the electors, to the count from some, at least some of the states in controversy. Uh, explaining that over the weekend was one of the senators objecting, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who um, tried to make the case to that yapping terrier who hosts Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, as to why this is right and proper, building upon actually the election fraud hearing he had before the holidays in the committee that he chairs in the House, in the Senate, excuse me, uh, Homeland Security, Ron Johnson. One of the points we make is that we are not acting to thwart the democratic process. We're acting to protect it. The fact of the matter is that we have an unsustainable state of affairs in this country where we have tens of millions of people that do not view this election result as legitimate. We've just come off for four years where the other side refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of President Trump. And here we are again. And what we're saying is we need transparency. And you do not, when you're trying to investigate wrongdoing in elections, you don't have very much time. And so what we're suggesting is uh, let's set up a commission, as they did. I know, I know it's a long time ago, 1877, uh, but let's take a look at a, a bipartisan commission to organize all the allegations. Uh, certainly what I did in my hearing is a three-and-a-half-hour hearing. We barely scratched the surface, but organize the allegations. Let's put out, take off the table the ones that have been explained, but also acknowledge the problem areas that have not been explained so that we can restore confidence in our election system. Of course, referencing uh, the commission after the 1876 election uh, between Hayes and Tilden that was disputed. Uh, Ron Johnson, then, of course, uh, based on what you just heard from him, which may sound reasonable to you, that was met with the customary ridicule from Chuck Todd. Then why didn't you hold hearings um, about the 9-11 truthers? There's plenty of people who thought 9-11 was an inside job. So you're basically I mean, saying Chuck, is that Chuck, there's yeah, enough I, people who I, I believe in conspiracy theory. If there's enough people who hold... I figure it was the most relevant issue. Are you going to do... How about the moon landing? Obviously, this, are you going to hold this hearings election, on that? 
So uh, holding hearings on election fraud or objecting and suggesting that an election commission, bipartisan election commission, be appointed, regardless of whether or not you want to argue the constitutional propriety of it, um, that is tantamount to uh, holding a hearing on you know, uh, the moon landing occurred on a soundstage or that 9-11 was an inside job. For uh, reaction to uh, that uh, characterization and what it implicates about uh, where we are. We're pleased to be joined by Daniel Oliver, former general counsel at the Department of Education, chairman of the FTC and executive editor of National Review, currently chairman of the Education and Research Institute. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. So is uh, what uh, Ron Johnson, Ted Cruz, and uh, a dozen uh, senators, uh, what they're proposing, is that um, the equivalent of having a hearing on uh, conspiracy (laughs) theories around the moon landing or 9-11? You know, I think it's just the Democrats, again, trying to obfuscate the matter because a lot of people really believe the election was stolen. If you look at the figures, it's about 39% of Americans think the election was, quote, stolen, Uh, 67% of Republicans, 17% of Democrats, and 31% of independents. That's a lot of people now who don't trust the electoral process, and it makes it difficult to run a country in a democratic way when you've got that many people not trusting how the process operates. You think the Democrats might be interested in looking into it, too, but they're not, because I think they understand the numbers, and that the numbers clearly indicate that there was a certain amount of fraud in the election, and that obviously will tend to make uh, Biden an illegitimate president, as indeed they tried to make Trump illegitimate. I think one of the things, though, too, is just, it's the left's posture, as we've heard for uh, much of the time, uh, except when the uh, results go against them, as in 2016 or 2004, is that uh, voter fraud in and of itself is a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I mean, that, and of course, that's nonsense. It does occur. But there are a couple of other aspects to the whole business, the sort of three aspects of the voting business. One is fraud. A second kind is uh, uh, the statistical anomalies we saw. And I wrote a piece about that, that uh, the, the absentee ballots, uh, normally they get rejected at 3%. And now in this election, some of them got rejected, uh, rejected at 0.6%. That's possible, but it's most unlikely. Um, and, and so if we live by statistics, when we charge police, uh, the police with discriminating on the basis of race, or if we charge banks with not giving loans because they're discriminating on the basis of race, we don't actually find a banker who says, yes, and I discriminate. They look at the numbers, and the numbers show that blacks don't get loans at the same rate as whites and say that's discrimination. Well, if that's discrimination, why isn't voting by, why why aren't votes that come in um, in disproportionate numbers without being challenged, why isn't that the same kind of statistical anomaly that we should challenge? I want to go back to the statistical anomalies issue because it's something people have pointed to for many weeks now. And, and you're right, of course, that the, the left will use the racial disparities and the example you use banking to say, well, it's uh, the only explanation possible is systemic racism. There's no consideration for other variables like, for example, creditworthiness right. um, when it comes to loans. But I also don't want to fall into their trap of manipulating statistics in the way that Mark Twain described um, so, for example, what you talk about uh, absentee ballots and the spoilage rate, it's possible that um, because of uh, the convenience of ballot drop boxes, because of the education about how to fill out absentee ballots uh, and so forth, that uh, despite the 
dramatic increase in turnout that uh, there was uh, less errors committed by voters across the nation. That's possible. But it's one of those things where if you want to address the statistical anomaly the way that I just addressed the banking statistical anomaly, you have to raise an explanation. And I don't hear an explanation. I just hear dismissal of this as, you know, as conspiracy mongering. Uh, or trying to disenfranchise somebody rather than looking for an explanation of why something so unusual occurred. Exponentially more absentee ballots, for example, and uh, and, and by a, 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 a multiple, a much lower spoilage rate. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, it is, as even the people who have brought those statistics to the fore have said, it is statistically possible. Anything is possible, but in the normal course of business, if your life depended on it and the life of the constitutional republic does depend on it, you would take a better look at it. You wouldn't get into a spaceship with those statistical anomalies. You'd say, wait a minute, I'm going to check on this because I don't want to fly this boat if it's got those kinds of problems. So you would look at it, but the Democrats don't want to look at it because I think because they know what they'll find. But you're exactly well, right. Those statistical anomalies, they're everywhere and they should be investigated. And, and another one that you point to in your piece at the American Conservative is uh, turnout. We talked about this on the show, too, is it, it's possible possible with same-day voter registration that some precincts in Milwaukee County could have had 120, 150, 180 percent turnout. Everybody turned out and then a bunch of other people equal to the number of registered voters also registered that day to vote in Milwaukee County and that precinct. That's possible. But is that what happened? Uh, you don't get an answer to that question. You get you're trying to disenfranchise uh, people, uh, black people in urban centers. Uh, right. no, I'm, I'm asking a question about how you got 200 percent turnout. That's a that's a neat trick. How'd you do it? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly right. They don't want to look at the facts. We all know what's going on here. That's the, the issue. That's why, as I say, 39% of Americans don't think that the election was fair. And you would think that, oh, except you don't understand why, you think that everybody would have an interest in getting to the bottom of it so that people can trust the elections. But they don't. The Democrats don't have any interest in getting to the bottom of it because they know what happened. And they want to roll right over America. And... Um, in that sense, that's a revolution, and it seems to me we're going to have one kind of revolution or another, and we don't know which it's going to be yet. What's, what's your perspective on the sort of the precedent-setting arguments going in uh, opposite directions? Tom Cotton arguing that it's a dangerous precedent to lodge these objections, as has been proposed, telegraphed by Cruz and others. And uh, Cruz, and as you heard Ron Johnson saying, that we're, we're basing our precedent on what was done in 1876. And oh, by the way, it is worth noting that in both 2004, with respect to the outcome in Ohio, and 2016, there were members, Democrat members of Congress who lodged objections to the results as well. So there's this no constitutional crisis or precedent that we're creating here. No, there certainly is not. And I think it's important to do it. So the idea that it is disruptive, yes, to that extent, um, Senator Cotton is correct. But, but when you have an election like this, uh, a disruptive election like this, it should be investigated. I think he's wrong. I think that this needs to be aired. Indeed, it needs to be aired so that so that those Americans who can be satisfied by what happens in Congress, by what will happen in Congress, can be satisfied. I don't think anybody, I don't think everybody's ever going to be satisfied, but it might be that by lodging the objections and discussing them openly and looking at them intelligently by both parties, a lot of those people who don't think the election is fair now can come to believe it is fair. If you sweep it out of the rug, hide it. Um, my guess is that you'll have more people who will think the election is unfair. Daniel Oliver, former general counsel at the Department of Education, chairman of the FTC, executive editor for National Review, and now chairman of the Education and Research Institute. Daniel Oliver, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, as we are at the advent of 2021, a question across uh, so many policy areas is will we unlearn any of the lessons that uh, were learned or should have been learned, perhaps, uh, in the last four years of the Trump presidency? Uh, one of those may be with respect to the uh, what turned out to be a shibboleth that uh, America was a mature, industrialized nation destined for slow growth as far as the eye could see. There was nothing we could do about uh, uh, stagnation, as it were, the great stagnation, if you want to borrow a Tyler Cohenism. Casey Mulligan uh, writes about uh, the stagnation that wasn't under President Trump, at least pre-COVID, and why that might be. Lessons that probably will uh, not be incorporated into a Biden administration, but uh, nonetheless could at least be incorporated into some Americans' understanding of what happened and what makes good economic policy. Casey Mulligan is professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He served as chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019. His new book, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President, explains how President Trump has clashed with special interests in his quest to cut federal regulation. And we begin there with Professor Mulligan. Thanks for joining us, Casey. Appreciate it. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year to you. And um, uh, we've talked about this before, um, including with you, um, but it bears more specificity perhaps in these times. Um, lessons have to continue to be articulated, I guess, in order to be inculcated. And that is that um, uh, there was a reason that uh, things like prices for uh, drugs, prescription drugs, prices for tech services declined during the Trump administration. There was um, a connection to the public policy choices that uh, the Trump administration made. You're right, Dan. He, uh, a lot of special interests have their hands in the rulemaking, and, and they try to shape those federal rules to help their companies and help their companies overcharge we consumers. That's been going on from the beginning. Uh, but President Trump really he came in from the outside. He didn't have allegiance to many of those. And so he, he got rid of those favors. And one of his areas of passion, of course, was prescription drugs. So he he took away a bunch of those uh, protective regulations. They weren't really doing anything for health. In fact, they were hurting health probably and made drugs cheaper. And then, and, and then in COVID, they made us get the vaccine quicker. I mean, so COVID allowed us to see what was going on behind the scenes for a while. And, you know, it's not like that Trump is uh, not a complicated figure when it comes to these matters, too, because he's made forays in the direction of price controls, too, you know, wanting to install caps and so on and so forth. And uh, as uh, we know from um, sort of Econ 101, uh, price controls tend to create surpluses or shortages artificially. And uh, so it's generally speaking bad public policy. But but when it comes when it came to deregulation or even just holding the line on regulations in certain sectors, it really allowed for innovation and productivity to blossom. That's right. And there was a battle within the White House. I mean, the White House had people who with a lot of government experience that, and the government, of course, is biased in favor of regulating. 
So <laughs> when you see multiple policies coming out, that really reflects a battle that we were having. Uh, some of us saying, let's get the government out of the way, and the others are saying, no, government's part of the solution. And, and so uh, the um, put this in the context now of what we've seen sort of in the, the perhaps waning days of the administration with respect to that $900 billion of additional COVID relief and in combination with a lot of pork barreling. Uh, Phil Graham writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that we're in this age of never-ending, quote-unquote, stimulus. We're just going to continue to have the government be a bigger and bigger driver of um, of economic activity. Uh, is that a con- is that something that you see as well? And and how concerned are you about that? The implications of of you know a quarterly multi hundred billion dollar relief packages. I'm a little worried about that. Um, American people generally understand what's going on, and, and they're a force. Uh, I wish they were more of a force, but they're a force. Um, I noticed that even in the Obama stimulus, a lot of just regular Americans are like, give me a break. This is not stimulating anything. You're just wasting our money. Um, I have been discouraged that people in my own profession are very few of them are willing to stand up these days and say, you know, this isn't good. This is this is a waste of money. This is going to special interests. It's not going to stimulate. Um, the scales have been tilted a little bit in favor of stimulus since the Obama days. And you also have now, as which is unsurprising. Once you say, oh, this is how it works, then everybody gets in line to get their piece. And so it's not just state and local governments, but now there's uh, a push among some in your profession for sovereign debt relief from debtor countries that don't have the same capacity as uh, countries in the West, including the United States. We're not only supposed to bail out New York and Illinois and California and Connecticut, we're supposed to bail out um, developing uh, nation to the developing world as well from their and, and you know all under the auspices of well they were they were wrecked uh, because of COVID not because of anything that predated COVID. Yeah, it, it is uh, disappointing. It, it, it's not unprecedented. A lot of these international organizations have been used to subsidize um, other countries, which I'm not sure is in really much of anybody's interest except for the people in power in those countries. And so as you uh, look forward to a Biden administration and not just looking at uh, the economic policy team he's put together, but also uh, the policy agenda that was on his campaign website, the rhetoric that's coming from members of Congress as well as members of the Biden administration, um, what is it that most concerns you in terms of – you know, the economic prosperity of the United States and coming out of this uh, COVID uh, lockdown recession? Well, the, the plans for energy um, in the name of climate change, uh, those are very concerning, although maybe they're just so wacky that, that they won't go through. The common sense American people won't stand for it. That's that's my hope. But taking him literally, it's, it's pretty scary. He wants essentially all cars to be electric. And that'll be expensive. And then people, everyone will be plugging in their cars, so we'll need more electricity. But at the same time, he's going to say, well, 70% of the ways we generate electricity, we can't generate it that way anymore because it's using natural gas or whatever. Um, so you're taking away supply and increasing demand, and that seems like a recipe for a third-world way of living. And, uh, you know, since we're just in the, the um, early days of 2021, let's retain a little bit of optimism. What... Uh, what do you think um, is something that's positive on the horizon that will uh, come to pass regardless of policymaking, uh, something 
that uh, will be uh, productive f- for you know America's uh, economic prospects in the coming year or years? Well, I think you have a divided government, which I think a lot of Americans like. Um, even if we don't have these uh, two Republican outcomes in, in Georgia, still there, there are still a few moderate Democrat senators left, and there'll be a voice of reason and moderation and from the middle where most Americans are in the middle. So actually, I, I think there's a lot of reason to be excited even on the policy area. He is Casey Mulligan, professor of economics, University of Chicago. He served as chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019. Check out his new book, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President, which explains how President Trump clashed with special interests in his quest to cut federal regulation. Casey Mulligan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving from Matters Economic with uh, Casey Mulligan to uh, Matters uh, COVID-related, at least in part. Have to remark upon and update people on the new and exciting oppression of lockdowners from coast to coast, whether it's in Manhattan Beach, where the village poobahs have decided to eliminate all public seating uh, as a means to encourage people to stay indoors, even though, boy, I don't know, the California climate, you probably want people to be outdoors if you're trying to stop the spread. But uh, okay, this is uh, a building upon the idea that uh, restaurateurs should be held accountable for where people eat their food after they pick it up from those restaurants that have managed to stay open during the most recent lockdown strictures of Governor Newsom and the, the uh, Democrat socialists in California. It's just remarkable. But that pales in comparison to what has been proposed in New York State. Legislation uh, in the State Assembly filed A416 is the bill site for those of you scoring at home. The pertinent phrase is... Uh, this, upon determining by clear and convincing evidence that the health of others is or may be endangered by a case contact or carrier or suspected case contact or carrier of a contagious disease, the governor or his or her delegee may order the removal and or detention of such a person or of such a, a group of such persons by issuing a single order identifying by name or reasonably specific description. Cuomo COVID detention camps in New York State. Hmm, if only there were some historical precedent for such detention camps that could inform our consideration of such a policy proposal. Uh, Let me just make it concrete, because concurrent to this legislation bubbling to the surface was a story in the New York Post over the weekend. Photos show thousands crammed into Brooklyn Synagogue for a funeral. New photos obtained by the Post show thousands of maskless mourners jammed inside a Williamsburg Synagogue for a funeral during the coronavirus pandemic, something that... uh, it's the Sandinista mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, Warren Wilhelm, for those of you scoring at home, uh, had said they're looking into, they take very seriously. So if, if A416 were in force, I just want to be, understand this, then the state of New York could round up these Jewish mourners and put them in a camp uh, for civil libertarians, self-styled civil libertarians on the left? Are there, are there any of you out there? Does that raise any red flags for you? Just remarkable. And that's where we're at. For more on this, as well as tomorrow's Georgia 
Senate runoffs. We're pleased to be joined again by Rabbi Dove Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. A little perspective on California from the rabbi as well. Rabbi, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's wonderful to be back on the show. Well, um, let's start in New York because uh, that is uh, the more chilling of the two. Uh, What's your reaction to that legislation? You know, what comes around goes around. And what really is is a shame is that many of the things that the left now approves of because it seems temporarily to advance their agenda, they're creating precedents that are really going to bite badly some of these days. Uh, it, it goes back to the same way that the left was so concerned, the ACLU, uh, in the old days about the FBI uh, wiretapping the Reverend Martin Luther King's private bedroom and they were worried about civil rights and keeping wiretaps out of a bedroom. And, and then suddenly they became very okay with kind of wiretapping and investigating and breaking into the privacy of people on the other side of the aisle these last few years. And it's going to bite them. Every one of these things is going to bite them. And unfortunately, I cannot smile because when the day comes that it turns around and goes the other way, I mean, there are going to be a lot of really good people on all sides of the aisle who are going to pay the price of allowing a governor, let's say, unilaterally to throw people into detention. You can't do this. It it never was something you could do in America, the America that we grew up in and know. And as you pointed out so incredibly well, uh, the irony of having a de Blasio or a Cuomo today just deciding if he wants to go ahead and mass detain Jews in a camp. Uh, But one of these days it's going to come and bite people on the other side too. And and for civil libertarians, real conservatives like us, who really believe in the rule of law and in the rule of freedom, um, when you start having people on the left thinking that it's going to be okay to do these things because, well, now it seems to fit their agenda, uh, one of these days, God forbid, it could reach a point where governors, crazy governors, and there are a whole bunch of them, uh, <laughs> could go ahead having really good people detained. It's just not America. It's Saudi no, Arabia. Yeah, and I, I don't want to go, you know, full Martin Niemöller here because I, I, I hope it bites them, you know, electorally right. or some other way before it bites good people, as you're suggesting. Uh, when we come back with Rabbi Duff Fisher, I want to turn our attention to uh, a topic that he's written a bit about, and that's those Georgia Senate runoffs tomorrow. More with Rabbi Duff Fisher, Rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California, right after. Dan Proft Show. Back to the show. We're speaking with Rabbi Dove Fisher. He's a high-stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and he's a rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. And, uh, Rabbi, you've written about uh, the Georgia Senate races, and even... uh, Setting aside sort of the political balance of power in the Senate and the implications nationally for a second, Ralph Warnock specifically, the Reverend Pro-Choice, as he uh, self-described, it's remarkable to me that he could be in a statistical dead heat for a Senate seat in Georgia or, frankly, any state. I I mean, it's one thing when you have people uh, running for office who are associated with – 
uh, overt anti-Semites like uh, Louis Farrakhan or Jeremiah Wright, as Barack Obama was, for example. It's another thing when the candidate is the anti-Semite, like Ralph Warnock. It's, it, it's mind-blowing. This is Georgia. This happened to Georgia. In my lifetime, that I've seen a Georgia turn into a state where this guy could even be, as you say, a candidate. Uh, you said it exactly right, Dan. The idea that we get outraged when another candidate turns out to associate with a hater like, like a Rafael Warnock. But the idea that he's the candidate, this guy is, he's, on the one hand, he's a Jew hater. But beyond that, he hates white people. He's an incredibly uh, vicious hater. Uh, and the thing is that for years he was preaching in a black church, in the church that once had been the one of Martin Luther King. And so when you're preaching to an all-black choir, yeah, and, and you're in an all-black church, and you're, and you're ragging on white people, and on Jews and on others, um, you figure you can get away with it because you've got an appreciative audience. And at the time, you're not thinking of running for the United States Senate. How it came to pass that he decides to run for the United States Senate is one story, but suddenly now, with a spotlight on all the things of hate that he'd been saying to what he thought was a closed audience, uh, he suddenly is now coming out for a few weeks saying that, no, I really don't hate white people. I really don't hate all, all those things I've been saying. No, no, I don't really mean it. He called, for example, he called Brexit ethnocentric. There's nothing ethnocentric about Brexit. It's a complicated European issue. The United Kingdom has very good reasons not wanting to have France, Italy, Germany, Hungary telling them how to run their country. Uh, but he saw it in terms of race. In the same way he preached that America needs to, quote, repent for its worship of whiteness. These are things he said inside a black church, and he thought he could get away with it. No one was listening. He would invite Jeremiah Wright, the one who said, God damn America. Unbelievable. He, explained, he would bring Jeremiah Wright to his church as a guest preacher. Uh, back in 2002, Warnock was arrested in Maryland for obstructing a police investigation to alleged child abuse at a church camp. This is a bad guy. And the idea that he actually would be one of only two people representing the state of Georgia as a United States senator, once in a while we get a weirdo and a wacky person in the House of Representatives because sometimes you get some kind of screwy district that can elect an Ocasio-Cortez or a Maxine Waters, but an entire state, it's almost unheard of in the modern era for a state in the United States to elect this kind of a hater. Uh, and and particularly, particularly a state uh, like Georgia. I mean, it, you know, it's not like we're we're not talking about. Uh, uh, I I don't even know what's. We're not talking about Oregon. I, I even Oregon. I don't know that would go for for Warnock. I don't know if there is a, a liberal state I can even think of that would go for for him. But but somehow Georgia is strictly on sort of racial lines, maybe, and a combination with. Uh, Whatever uh, you know, demagoguery is is associated with uh, President Trump. I mean, that that seems to be sort of the sum total of the uh, of the basis of his candidacy. So much true. Uh, it, it's one of the great tragedies and unexpected, perhaps, for some people, that the election of Obama in two thousand eight, at a time that this country really had reached a real peace, a racial harmony, blacks and whites and. Hispanics, people of all backgrounds, Asians, everybody was getting along okay. We had 
our usual problems in this country, economic problems and problems of foreign affairs and issues, but race was not on the table. This country had racial harmony. In comes Obama. Right away he starts opining on some police in Massachusetts dealing with a break-in that turned out to be a, a, a professor who whom they couldn't identify at the time and did not want to identify himself. And Obama created this eight-year period of highlighting racial differences in ways that Americans simply did not think anymore. And he laid the seeds of a hatred, of a race hatred, that has now burgeoned into a position where in, in everyday life there is no systemic racism, but you get these radicals who speak out and they see everything in terms of race. It's an extra, it, it would be like, right. I'm a rabbi, as I'm talking to you. I'm just talking to another great American. I'm not thinking to myself, I'm a Jew talking to a Christian, really underlying it all, you and I are at war. I'm not thinking like that. I love talking no, but, to you. Right, and, and so, and, but, but this, is, this is sort of the classic uh, modus operandi of the left, right, is we, we preach unity while we practice divide and conquer. Divide I mean, there's, al conquer. there's always the subtext, right? Divide and conquer convince people who have come into this country that somehow you're coming into a country that hates you, the white people hate you, and we're the ones who love you. Only about a decade ago, we were the ones trying to keep you out of the country. Uh, now we're bringing you in because we think you as Hispanics, if we can do a good divide and conquer with you, maybe we can get you to vote and turn states like California that once gave us Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon and uh, Pete Wilson and George Dick Machen, maybe we could turn California into such a blue state that they won't even know what it looks like to have sensible policies. And the same thing with New York. Divide and conquer. Convince people that everything is about you against them and that this is it's a horrible thing because, you know, the people coming into this country didn't have to come in. They're coming in because they want to come into America. They like what America looks like. They know about the white people in this country and the people who are Asian and Indo-Asian, etc., etc., and they want to be part of this rather than to continue living in the countries where they already have the same ethnicity as everyone else. But no sooner do they arrive than the Pelosi's begin and all of their little minions begin teaching people to think in terms of us against them. It's a horrible thing. It destroys the social fabric of this country. He is Rabbi Dove Fisher, Esquire, high-stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, soy boys in part with uh, Rabbi Rabbi Fisher in uh, connection with, uh, in particular, Georgia Dem Senate candidate John Ossoff. Pajama boy, would you prefer? Well, speaking of uh, pajama boys, the big ch pajama party on uh, New Year's Eve. Did you watch CNN with uh, Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen yucking it up? Did you uh, catch Warren Wilhelm and his wife uh, doing that little dance in time to an empty Times Square? Yeah, great stuff.
Well, uh, among the festivities that you missed, if you didn't catch them, if you had better things to do, and could there be anything worse to do than watch Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohn shtick, was uh, the two of them interviewing Snoop Dogg about where he smokes weed. Riveting stuff. But uh, listen, I think I found the guy to replace Joaquin Phoenix if he doesn't want to do a sequel to The Joker. Have you yes. gotten high on CNN? No, but in front of the CNN building on Sunset Boulevard, I have. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> have <laughs> Snoop, That's have you gotten high Not kidding. at the DMV? <laughs> That would be a no. <laughs> that would well, be a no-no. Let me ask you this, and then I'm going to wrap out of this game. Have you gotten high at a brisk? <laughs> Have yes, you? yes, yes. Yes. No. no. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. This is the dog of all dogs we're talking about, Andy. Okay. Oh. It's good to know that Snoop Dogg is still alive. I wasn't sure. That's, you know, A-list guess that uh, Cooper and Cohen got there. How, how about that laugh? I mean, uh, forget Heath Ledger. May he rest in peace. Forget uh, Joaquin Phoenix. There's your new Joker. And, um, by the way, uh, thankfully, Gloria Vanderbilt has moved on to her eternal award, too, so she didn't have to witness that in person, try to explain. Something else, too, just on the notion of, you know, glamorizing smoking weed. Of course, what else are you going to do with Snoop Dogg? Talk about music. It was interesting. I, I don't know if you watched the, the Bears game yesterday afternoon. I'm a Chicagoan, so watch the Bears game. But it, it is just so perfect because this is not unique to Illinois. The T's going into halftime of that game from the local news, the local Fox affiliate carrying the game in Chicago, was this. Remember, Illinois, the worst governed state in the country. The tease was, can the boom continue? Marijuana sales skyrocket in Illinois during pandemic. 2021 could be even bigger. Could this be the boost the Illinois economy needs? Coming up tonight after the game. Right. <laughs> the local outposts of the D.C. press corps are no better at distinguishing pennies or fraction of pennies from dollars than the D.C. press corps is. They also have no appreciation for worker productivity. The, the idea of you know drugs being the salvation for a state's economy. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Stay informed, stay courageous so you can stay free and stay tuned for us tomorrow. Please join us again. Thanks. This is the Dan Prof Show.